Part One of the Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner by Georg Gunther Freiherr von Forstner. Translated by Anna Crafts Codman with commentary by John Hayes Hammond, Jr. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner, Chapter 1, Ordered to Command a Submarine. Every year about the 1st of October, at the time of the great army maneuvers, new appointments are also made in the Navy. But unlike our army brothers, who from beginning to end remain permanently either in the artillery, cavalry, or infantry, we officers of the Navy are shifted from cruiser to torpedo boat, from the ship of the line to the hated office desk on land at the Admiralty, in order to fit us to serve our almighty warlord in every capacity and to the best advantage. The commander of a torpedo boat must be familiar with the service on board a dreadnought or on any other large ship, for only those who are intimately acquainted with the kind of ship they are going to attack possess sufficient skill to destroy it. For the first time in the autumn of 1900 and... Dash, some of us were surprised at the announcement ordered on board a submarine. This order naturally met with an immediate response, but it brought a new outlook on the possibilities of our career, for we had not yet been trained in this branch of the service, which our almighty warlord had only recently added to the Imperial Navy. The question was, should we be able to perform this new duty? It is well known that the French were the first to complete a type of submarine navigable under seas, and the English, unwillingly, but with a sly anticipation of coming events, copied this type of boat. To all outward appearance, we kept aloof from following the example of our neighbors, and our chiefs of the Admiralty were beset with expostulations on the subject but they were silently biding their time while our enemies of today were bragging about their successful experiments with their newly constructed submarines. To the dismay and astonishment of our opponents, it was only when the right hour had struck that our Navy revealed that it had similar weapons at its command. It therefore prepared for them some disagreeable surprises and set its special seal from the very beginning on the maritime warfare. I remember a talk I had with an old army officer a few years ago when I had just received my appointment to a submarine. We were speaking of U-boats and aeroplanes, and he exclaimed, Ah, my dear Forstner, give it up. The bottom of the ocean is for fishes, and the sky is for birds. What would have happened to us in this war had we not so proudly excelled above the earth and beneath the sea? At first, a mystery still veiled our knowledge concerning our submarines. We were told that the dear, good, old U-boat number 1 had splendidly stood every test, and shortly after, in October 1900-and-I went on board, and had the honor later to command her for two years. But during this period, for several years, the greatest secrecy surrounded this new weapon of our Navy, Strictest orders were given to admit no one on board, not even high officers. Only admirals were allowed to penetrate within, 
and on every matter concerning our U-boats, we had to maintain absolute silence. Now, however, that our usefulness has been so fully justified, the veil of discretion can be somewhat lifted, and I can describe within certain limits the life and activities on board a submarine. Chapter 2. Breathing and Living Conditions Under Water A submarine conceals within its small compass the most concentrated technical disposition known in the art of mechanical construction, especially so in the spaces reserved for the steering gear of the boat and for the manipulation of its weapons. The life on board becomes such a matter of habit that we can peacefully sleep at great depths under the sea, while the noise is distinctly heard of the propellers of the enemy's ships hunting for us overhead. For water is an excellent sound conductor, and conveys from a long distance the approach of a steamer. We are often asked, how can you breathe under water? The health of our crew is the best proof that this is fully possible. We possessed, as fellow passengers, a dozen guinea pigs, the gift of a kindly and anxious friend, who had been told these little creatures were very sensitive to the ill effects of a vitiated atmosphere. They flourished in our midst and proved amusing companions. It is essential, before a U-boat submerges, to drive out the exhausted air through powerful ventilating machines and to suck in the purest air obtainable. But often in wartime, one is obliged to dive with the emanations of cooking, machine oil, and the breath of the crew still permeating the atmosphere for it is of the utmost importance to the success of a submarine attack that the enemy should not detect our presence. Therefore, it is impossible at such short notice to clear the air within the boat. These conditions, however, are bearable, although one must be constantly on the watch to supply in time fresh ventilation. Notwithstanding certain assertions in the press of alleged discoveries to supply new sources of air, the actual amount remains unchanged from the moment of submersion, and there is no possibility, either through ventilators or any other device so far known in U-boat construction, to draw in fresh air under water. This air, however, can be purified from the carbonic acid gas exhalations by releasing the necessary proportion of oxygen. If the carbonic acid gas increases in excess proportion, then it produces well-known symptoms in a different degree in different individuals, such as extreme fatigue and violent headaches. Under such conditions, the crew would be unable to perform the strenuous maneuver demanded of it, and the carbonic acid must be withdrawn and oxygen admitted. The ventilation system of the entire submarine is connected with certain chemicals through which the air circulates, whose property is to absorb and retain the carbonic acid. Preparations of potassium are usually employed for this purpose. Simultaneously, cylinders of oxygen, under fairly high pressure, spray oxygen into the ventilation system, which is released in a measure proportionate to the number of the crew. There is a meter in the distributing section of the oxygen tubes, which is set to act automatically at a certain ratio per man. The ordinary atmosphere is bearable for a long time, 
and this costly method of cleansing the air is used only as a last resort. The moment at which it must be employed is closely calculated to correspond not only with the atmospheric conditions at the time of submersion, but also to the cubic quantity of air apportioned to each man according to his activities and according to the size of the boat. It is unnecessary to clear the air artificially during a short submersion, but during prolonged ones it is advisable to begin doing so at an early hour to prevent the carbonic acid gas from getting a disproportionate percentage, as it becomes then more difficult to control, and it is obvious that it is impossible to dissipate the fumes of cooking, the odors of the machine oil, and the breath of the crew. Taken altogether, one can live comfortably under seas, although there is a certain discomfort from the ever-increasing warmth produced by the working of the electrical machinery, and from the condensation created by the high temperature on the surface of the boat plunged in cold water, which is more noticeable in winter and in colder regions. It is interesting to observe that the occupations of the crew determine the atmospheric conditions. The quantity of air required by a human body depends entirely on its activity. A man working hard absorbs in an hour 85 liters of air. Besides the commander, who is vigorously engaged in the turret, as will be hereafter described, the men employed in the lateral and depth steering and those handling the torpedo tubes are doing hard physical work. The inactive men use up a far smaller quantity of air, and it is ascertained that a man asleep requires hourly only 15 liters of air. A well-drilled crew off-duty is therefore expected to sleep at once, undisturbed by the noise around them and their efficiency is all the greater when the time comes to relieve their weary comrades. We had a wireless operator on board, whose duties ceased after submersion, and he had so well perfected the art of sleeping that he never cost us more than fifteen liters of air hourly under seas. The length of time that a U-boat can remain under water depends, as we stated above, on the atmospheric conditions at the moment of plunging, and on the amount of oxygen and chemicals taken on board. We can stay submerged for several days, and a longer period will probably never be necessary. The distance of vision varies somewhat under water, as we look out from the side windows cut into the steel armor of the commander's conning tower. We can naturally see farther in the clear water of the deep ocean, than in the turbid, dirty water at the mouth of a river, and the surface of the water bottom has a direct influence on the site, which is far more distinct over a light sand than over dark seaweed or black rocks, and at an upper level the sunshine is noticeable many meters under water. But in any case, the vision under seas is of the shortest, and does not extend beyond a few meters. Light objects, and even the stem and stern of our own boat are invisible from the turret. We are unaware, therefore, of advancing ships, derelicts, or projecting rocks, and no lookout can preserve us from these dangers. 
The crew is entirely ignorant of their surroundings. Only the commander in his turret surveys through the periscope now and then a small sector of the horizon, and in turning round the periscope he gradually perceives the entire horizon. But this survey demands great physical exertion, which on a long cruise is most fatiguing. The periscopes erected through the upper cover of the turret must not be too easily turned in their sockets, and the latter are very tightly screwed in, for otherwise they would not be able to resist the water pressure at a great depth. The effort of simply turning the periscope is so exhausting that casual observations of the horizon are made by the officer of the watch. But during naval maneuvers or in time of war, the commander alone manipulates the periscope. It is essential in this case that the periscope should not arise needlessly above water and betray the presence of the U-boat. The commander must possess the absolute confidence of his crew, for their lives are in his hands. In this small and carefully selected company, each man, from the commanding officer down to the sailor boy and down to the stoker, knows that each one is serving in his own appointed place, and they perform their duties serenely and efficiently. I have always allowed every man on board, once, in turn, to have a look through the periscope. It is their highest ambition, and the result is excellent, for it reassures them, and they feel more confident as to their own safety after the granting of this small favor. As we advance under seas, unless passing through a school of fish, we seldom see any fish, for the noise of the propellers frightens them away. But when we lie at rest on the bottom of the ocean, the electric lights allure them, and they come and stare at us with goggling eyes close to the windows in the turret. The life, therefore, in our cylinder, as we call it, offers a good deal of variety. The term cylinder is exact for the inner conformation of a submarine is necessarily rounded so that relatively thin partitions can successfully resist the greatest pressure of water. Chapter 3. Submersion and Torpedo Fire A new passenger, for the first time in a submarine, has often professed to be unaware that he was fathoms deep under water, and has been quite unconscious that the boat had been diving. Of course, his astonishment indicates that he was not in the compartment where these maneuvers take place, for it is in the commander's turret that the whole apparatus is centralized for submersion, for steering to the right depth, and also for immersion. At this juncture, every man must be at his post, and each one of the thirty members of the crew must feel individually responsible for the safety of the whole in the difficult and rapid maneuver of plunging, for the slightest mistake may endanger the security of the boat. The central control, situated in the commander's turret, is in reality the brain of the boat. When the alarm signal is heard to change the course from surface navigation to subsurface navigation, several previously designated members of the crew take their post of duty in the commander's turret. The commander himself is on duty during the whole of the expedition in time of war, 
and he seldom gets a chance for rest in his tiny little cabin. Day and night, if there is the slightest suspicion of the approach of the enemy, he watches on the exposed bridge on the top of the turret, for a few seconds' delay in submerging might forfeit the taking of a much-coveted prize. So he learns to do without sleep, or to catch a few brief seconds of repose by lying down in his wet clothes, and he is at once ready to respond to the alarm signal of the officer of the watch. In one bound he is once more surveying the horizon through the periscope, or mounts to the bridge to determine with his powerful field glass whether friend or foe is in sight. His observations must be taken in the space of a few seconds, for the enemy is also constantly on the lookout, and continual practice enables the sailor in the crow's nest to detect the slender stem of a periscope, although the hull of the boat is scarcely visible on the face of the waters. The commander must come to a prompt decision as soon as he locates the adversary's exact position. Not only may a retarded submersion spoil our plan of attack, but we are exposed to being rammed by a rapidly advancing steamer. Our haste must be all the greater if the conditions of visibility are impaired, as is often the case on the high seas, for it takes time for the U-boat to submerge completely, and during this process it is helplessly exposed to the fire of long-distance guns. Calmly, but with great decision, the commander gives the general orders to submerge. The internal combustion engines, the oil motors, which, during surface navigation, are used to accelerate the speed of the boat, are immediately disconnected, as they consume too much air under seas, and electric motors are now quickly attached and set in motion. They are supplied by a large storage battery, which consumes no air and forms the motive power during subsurface navigation. Of course, electricity might be employed above water, but it uses up much current which is far more expensive than oil and would be wasted too rapidly if not economized with care. It would be convenient to employ the same oil motor for underseas navigation, but such a machine has not yet been constructed, although various futile attempts of this kind have been made. With only one system of propulsion we should gain much coveted space and a more evenly distributed weight. Within the same dimensions, new weapons of attack could be inserted, and also effective weapons of defense. The inventor of such a device would earn a large reward. Let him who wants it try for it. Quickly, with deft hands, the outboard connections, which served as exhausts for the oil motors, must be closed in such a way as to resist at once the high water pressure. It is well known that for every ten meters under water we oppose the pressure of one atmosphere, one kilogram to the square centimeter, and we must be prepared to dive to far greater depths. When all these openings have been carefully closed and fastened, then begins the maneuver of submersion. The seawater is admitted into big open tanks. Powerful suction engines in the central control of the boat draw out the air from these tanks so as to increase the rapid inrush of the water. The chief engineer notifies the captain as soon as the tanks are sufficiently filled and an even weight is established 
so as to steer the boat to the proper depth for attack. Notwithstanding the noise of the machinery, large, wide, open speaking tubes facilitate the delivery of orders between the commander's turret and the central, and now is the moment the commander gives the order to submerge. All this may sound very simple, and yet there are a great many things to consider. In the same manner in which an airplane is carefully balanced before taking wing into the high regions of the sky, a submarine must be accurately weighed and measured before it descends into the watery depths of the ocean. The briny water of the North Sea weighs far more than the less salty water of the Baltic Sea, whose western basin is composed of practically fresh water. A boat floats higher in the heavily salted waters of the North Sea and lies deeper and plunges further down in the waters of the Baltic. The same U-boat, therefore, must take into its tanks a greater quantity of water ballast in the North Sea to be properly weighted than when diving into fresher waters. Even with small submarines of 400 tons displacement, there is the enormous difference of 10 tons between 1.025 specific weight in the intake of North Sea water and 1.000 specific weight of fresh water. On the other hand, if too much water is admitted into the tanks, the submarine may plunge with greater velocity deeper and deeper beyond its appointed depth, and in such a case it might even happen that the hull of the boat could not withstand the overpowering pressure and would be crushed beneath the mass of water. And yet again, if too small a quantity of water ballast is admitted into the tanks, the boat may not sink sufficiently below the surface, and thus we could not attain an invisible attack which is positively necessary for our success. How much water, then, must we take in? The answer to this question is a matter of instinct, education, and experience, and we must also depend on the cleverly devised apparatus made for this purpose. The submarine, like the airplane, must be always maintained at the proper level. The weight of the boat varies continually during a prolonged voyage. Food is devoured, and the diving material of the machinery is consumed. The water in which the boat swims continually changes weight, and the boat is imperceptibly raised or lowered in a way very difficult to ascertain. The officer responsible for the flooding of the submarine must painstakingly keep its weight under control during the entire navigation. The weight of a meal eaten by each man of the crew, the remains of the food and the boxes in which it was contained, which have been thrown overboard, must be calculated, as well as the weight of the water, and the officer employs delicate apparatus for these measurements. On the open seas, these alterations in weight do not occur very rapidly, but whenever a boat approaches the mouth of a river, then the transition from salt to fresh water happens very suddenly, and may provoke the undesirable disturbances to which we have already alluded. Also, warm and cold currents at different depths produce thermotic conditions, which surprisingly change the weight of the water. Peculiar as it may appear, a submarine must be lightened to descend to a very great depth, whereas in steering to a higher level, more water must be admitted into the tanks to prevent our emerging to the surface with too great suddenness.
This demands careful attention, skill, and experience. The principal condition for the success of a submarine attack is to steer to the exact depth required. The periscope must not rise too far above water, for it might easily be observed by the enemy. But if, by clumsy steering, the top of the periscope descends below the waves, then it becomes impossible to take aim to fire the torpedo. The commander, therefore, must be able to depend on the two men who control the vertical and horizontal rudders, whom another officer constantly directs and supervises. When the boat has reached the prescribed depth, a close examination is made of all the outward leading pipes to see if they can properly resist the water pressure. If any tiny leak has been sprung, every cap must be tightly screwed down, for it is evident it would be very undesirable if any leak should occur and increase the heaviness of the submarine. Absolute silence must prevail, so that any dripping or greater influx in the tanks can be observed. Quietly and silently the boat advances against the enemy. The only audible sounds are the purring of the electric motors and the unavoidable noise made by the manipulation of the vertical and horizontal rudders. Alert and speechless, every man on board awaits a sign from the commander who is watching in the turret. But some time may elapse now that the periscope is lowered and nearly on the level of the waters before the adversary becomes visible again. The ship may have changed her course and have taken an opposite direction to the one she was following at the moment we submerged. In that case, she would be out of reach and all our preparations prove useless. At various intervals, the commander presses an electric button and raises and lowers the periscope as quickly as possible, so as to take his own observation without, if possible, being observed himself, for he knows that any injury to the periscope, his most priceless jewel, would, as it were, render the boat blind and rob him of the much-coveted laurel leaves. During these short glimpses, the commander only perceives a little sky and the wide, round plate of the reflected sea with its dancing waves, while the nervous tension of the expectant crew increases every minute. At last is heard a joyous outcry from the commander. The fellows are coming, and after one quick glance to locate the enemy exactly, the periscope is lowered. Now every heart beats with happy anticipation, and every nerve quivers with excitement. End of part one.